its foreheads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this incredible privilege of gathering together as family. Thank you for providing us with a unity and a faith that you've also provided us by grace, Father, motivated, of course, by your love. Thank you for giving us this place of worship that we might fellowship together in your Son's good name, our Lord and Savior. What a privilege it is. May we never become familiar with it. Father, we pray for those that are ill in the congregation, that can't be with us here this evening, that you comfort them, heal them, and return them to us uh, in your good timing, of course. We also pray for those that are still lost in this world, Father, that just are destitute and headed to the lake of fire unless they are humbled and receive saving faith, Father. We are most grateful and thankful, of course, for your son's work on the cross to cancel out that debt and to make an evening like this of rejoicing a reality for all of us. We just ask for your blessings on this evening's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. <clears throat> Again, uh, the Lord is our confidence, part 53. Here's how we began on Sunday uh, with this principle here. I can get to it. Obedience. What begins at salvation proper with the command to obey the gospel continues throughout our lives as we are commanded, again, to obey the word. And so it doesn't just start with uh, the gospel, of course. The gospel is a command. I wrote a blog on that. But also we are commanded throughout the word of God to obey the word. And FYI, of course, the power source for obedience throughout is the Holy Spirit. And he's the one who convicts us at salvation and also as believers. And what a grace gift that is, to have the help of God the Holy Spirit uh, along with us in our own sanctification. This past week we noted that Paul referred to obedience of faith on the topic of obedience throughout the entire book of Romans. And I think that's news to a lot of people. I don't believe personally, uh, based on my discussions with people over the years, that obedience of faith is at the top of the list when people think about the book of Romans. Um, there are other, obviously, deep theological truths there, but obedience of faith is first and last sentence. Just put that into perspective. Being a first-hand disciple of Jesus Christ, uh, we ought not be surprised by Paul writing about the obedience of faith. For it was the Lord that said this, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And Paul, as we know, was trained firsthand by Jesus Christ. So it's not, it shouldn't be a surprise at all that we hear him writing about obedience of faith as really a mainstay in sanctification. Jesus said this, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Therefore, obedience of faith, uh, humility, and meekness, as we saw a couple of weeks ago, all speak to the same thing, submission to the Lordship of Christ. This is what love looks like. 
Submission to the Lordship of Christ. This is what love looks like. Up here on the board to prove it to you, 1 John 5, verse 3. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. This is the love of God. You know, it's, it's interesting. I was, this just occurred to me now. It must be the Spirit. There's not really um, an overwhelming emotion there, is there? Right? It's not that romantic, emotional, gushy, mushy kind of love that's even in view. It's this godly kind of love, this love that has uh, substance to it, that's not fleeting, that's based on knowledge and understanding and wisdom. Um, that's what's in view here. And that's what the Bible says is the love of God. He says, this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. Now, I was thinking about that last statement. <clears throat> Does this last sentence and his commands are not burdensome mean that keeping the commandments are easy? You know, it's just a breeze. It's just, you know, once you, once you read the Bible one time, all of a sudden every commandment's like, Pff. is that the case? No, not at all. That's not even close to the truth. Ask a new mother if caring for her baby is difficult or not. Matter of fact, call her up at about 3 a.m. Say, how are you making out with that screaming bundle of joy? Right? <laughs> Ask her if caring for her new baby is difficult or not. You know the answer. She'll likely say yes, but it's what I love to do. So I don't look at it as a burden. It's not that kind of burden. It's what I love to do. Yes, it's difficult, but it's what I love to do. That's what's in view here. Yes, the commandments aren't always easy. Yes, they're difficult, but it's what I love to do. I want to keep his commandments because I love him. That's the idea behind the statement on the board. John wrote 1 John 5.3, in fact, he wrote about love so often that we sometimes refer to him as the apostle of love. He also recorded the following. Go to John 15, verse 10. John 15, verse 10. I think it's imperative that we understand um, this love and its connection to obedience, keeping commandments, in other words, meekness, submission, John 15:10 Excuse my voice. I don't know. I woke up this way. I feel like Rod Stewart. Tonight's the night. Nobody? <laughs> Nobody? <laughs> if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. How about that? Keep my commandments, abide in my love, therefore, and my joy may be full in you. How awesome is that? Just abide this way. Don't be all super romantic about it. Don't expect to be emotionally charged up every time you come to church or every time you open the Bible or every time you, you see something new in the Bible or some new command strikes you a new way. Uh, don't expect all that. 
Don't expect to be, you know, doing cartwheels after class every time. Or that's garbage. That's I, I, I actually believe in my soul that that's the um, commercialism of, of Christianity today. It's not hard to capitalize on that. If you lie to so-called Christians and say, and, and you know, um, if you lie to them and, and promise them emotionalism, it's a real easy market to get into. But it's not the kind of love, it's not the kind of joy that the Bible talks about. If that were the case, I would teach it. But it's not the case. And the, the downside is it's really hard to keep up that game. You see? Eventually you can't impress anybody. Eventually it comes to a point where you can't stir their emotions the same way you used to. New band, another band, a new colors, I don't know, a new, a, a, a new rug for Pastor Ed. Right? Whatever. I, that stuff runs its course. And it's just, it's gimmicky, you see? It's gimmicky. And we don't, the Bible doesn't speak to that. The Bible speaks very clearly, and we just read it in two different passages. The capstone of our review of the obedience of faith was this up here on the board. Come on, baby. Ay, ay, ay. I'll do it manually. Don't worry about it, DJ. I'll just do it manual. To Paul, obedience was the key to sanctification. That's what we learned when we read uh, throughout the book of Romans. That when he talked about the obedience of faith, first sentence, last sentence, sentences in between. And I hope you do take that on as a challenge in your own spiritual walk to read Romans this way with, a, with an obedience of faith lens. Don't get stuck if, you know, don't get stuck on, stuck on the deep theology of, you know, justification, propitiation, all that good stuff. Just read it. Read it with obedience of faith in view and see what happens. And this is what you'll see. To Paul, obedience was the key to sanctification. As it relates to our current series, The Lord is Our Confidence, we also noted this. When we're obedient, we're confident. When we're obedient, why? Because we know we're in the right. When you're obedient, when you're oriented to God, you know that you're in the right. And when you know you're in the right, and that right is consistent with God, you have confidence. Simple formula. Don't make it religious, but you get my point. So after 53 parts of this series, we might conclude that the chief antagonist to this confidence, is, which is the same for sanctification, is disobedience. The chief antagonist to confidence and sanctification, therefore, is disobedience. If you want to stagnate, in other words, if you want to lack confidence, in other words, disobey. You want to lose your footing in this world. You want to be wishy-washy again. Uh, disobey. You want to not sleep at night. Disobey. You want to wallow in self-induced misery. Disobey. You want to live in anxiety and fear and all that yucky stuff. Disobey. So we have to ask ourselves one more time, what is the deal? Honestly, what's the deal? It seems so simple. If all the blessings are tied up in sanctification, why don't people simply obey? Because I believe it's in part. Words, even at face value, 
words like obey and obedience in our culture carry a negative connotation with them. It's difficult to get beyond that as a, as a Bible teacher. It's difficult to get beyond that even because words like obey and obedience, they carry a negative connotation. Obedience in America, let's face it, is typically a sign of weakness. That you're now what? Subservient. That that's, that's a sign of weakness. Well, I've got no other option. It's my boss. We know what the Bible says. All authority is from him. Obey. We know what the Bible has to say about That's not weakness. That's actually strength. It takes a lot more strength to obey than to disobey, does it not? Especially when you get a crappy boss. But obedience in America is a sign of weakness. It means you are precluded from being a, you know, so-called self-made man or self-made woman. It means you have no right to self-esteem or self-confidence. It means you have lost the great battle being waged between, you know, the evil powers that be and the liberation of mankind. Of course, this is the satanic lie that promises one thing and delivers another up here on the board. Satanic lies produce the exact opposite of what they promise. To we believers, our obedience, in other words, our weakness before our master, is everything. It's everything. It's actually where we enjoy our strength. We say, I'm going to hand it over. I don't have the strength. That's right. I am too weak to, to pass this test alone. I am too weak to fight this temptation alone. I need to get down on my knees right now before I fail. I am too weak. That's our strength. Go to 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9. And so obedience becomes a thing of beauty. Do you understand? Do you see what he's been developing in us in this series? Obedience becomes a thing of beauty. That's the exact opposite that we're given from the world system. The world system says obedience is for the weaklings. 2 Corinthians 12, beginning with obeying the gospel, by the way. Oh, you know, if, if, if you need a Savior, me, I don't really need a Savior. But if you need one, go ahead. Oh, thank you. 2 Corinthians 12, 9. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Perfect. Remember that. When you're strong in the Lord, through obedience to Him, you garner or have confidence. You are confident. When you're strong in the Lord, through obedience to Him, you are confident. That is the principle. That is what we've been after all this time, isn't it? After these 53 parts in this series titled, The Lord is Our Confidence. Isn't that what we're after? Confidence. And the Spirit's basically plainly saying, obey. If you want confidence, then obey. The world says, this is confidence, right? 
I can stand up against the man. I can stand up. I can be a self-made. I can have self-confidence. I beat my chest and prove it to myself and the rest of the world that I'm confident. That's the exact opposite. So the Lord, the, the Spirit's been teaching us this all along. If you want confidence, then you obey. You submit. You're meek. On the other hand, when we disobey, which is really just another name for sinning, we lose our confidence as it is displaced with a counterfeit that leads us back into bondage. James wrote about this up here on the board. James 1.15 Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. That's the process, you see? Sinning is never this way. You know that, right? There's always, a, there's always a progression. Something catches your eye, something catches your thought. It sort of grows legs, right? It starts tempting you. You have the, you have the ability to say no, and then it's carried out. And if you give in to that temptation, well, then I'll pop sin. And when you sin, it brings forth death. And it doesn't necessarily, it can mean physical death. Uh, that's up to God, but it, uh, for our purposes here, means spiritual death. Um, sin, for example, disobedience, takes us back to spiritual death experientially, which means we suffer. If eternal life is with God and we depart experientially back towards where we came from, spiritual death, we leave all the good stuff behind. If this is peace and contentment over here, this is suffering. If he's got the market cornered on all good things, guess what's left? All the other stuff, all the bad stuff, which means we suffer when we sin. The goal of Satan, remember this, is to control you, even as a believer. The only way he can do this is to tempt you to disobey God's will. That's the thing. It doesn't necessarily matter what you do, just that you do something against God, something to obey or disobey God's will, that is to sin. Satan cannot control a person, nor can sin, if we get theological, you know, teshuka. If a person can see God clearly and his commandments remain something they love to do, that aren't burdensome, that they remain in that slot, if you would. Satan can't control that person because they're seeing clearly. They're seeing it all as truth. They see sin. They see the, the lust pattern in the soul start to percolate up, right? They say, oh, here it comes. Here it comes, right? This pretty little thing over in work here just winked at me. Now I'm all fired up. Or this guy over here at the gym has been like pumping iron for seven hours and I just got to stare at him. I don't know what, I don't know, whatever you crazy ladies look at. The truth is that God loves us. Some of you are like, ah, apple pie. <laughs> chocolate. <laughs> Heck with the gym. <laughs> Give me a good hot chocolate in a movie. <laughs> the truth is that God loves us and expresses that love through grace. But the world we live in despises his grace and love. While our confidence is rooted in these things, the world's confidence is destroyed by them. 
You have to think that way, that godly grace and love is the destructive force in this world. And here's the beautiful thing about it. It can't be contained. It cannot be stopped. Godly grace and love has never been contained, and it has never been stopped. And Satan knows that. The world knows that. And so it's, a, it's the ultimate threat to its way of life, to its economy. When that stuff enters its economy, its economy tanks, even at a microcosm level, in you, so to speak. While our confidence is rooted in these things, the world's confidence is destroyed by them. Here's a familiar principle on the topic of grace from an early message in this series. You might remember it. The power of grace. Remember, we're coming out of this deep dive now. Some of these are going to be very familiar to you, hopefully. The power of grace. Fleshly humans are offended by grace gifts, by free gifts. Grace, therefore, as it is known in God's economy, proper grace, that is, causes much consternation in the soul of the ungodly because it completely unhinges, dismantles, undermines, and destroys any hope of obtaining counterfeit promises from Satan's economy. In other words, all the temptation gets blown up. That's what grace and love does. It gives no operating room for the flesh because the flesh depends on that little thing called creature credit. There's got to be some coming back to me. I don't like this idea of free stuff. Free stuff means I can't earn anything. Free stuff means the, the very framework that I live by, that I elevate myself by, is blown to bits because now it's just by the grace of God. I don't like that setup. I need to do something to impress myself and others and hopefully God. So the power of grace just annihilates, decimates uh, the human flesh and Satan's economy. I mentioned this on Sunday, but it's worth a visit here and now for the sake of edification that our confidence rests in our faith in the word of truth. Where do we get our confidence? The word of truth. Where, what's the word of truth? The Lord Jesus Christ. But here's the thing. When we talk proper about faith, faith must be tested for it to be consummated. I mentioned this on Sunday. Faith must be tested for it to be consummated. We might as well say the same thing for our confidence because if you think about it, loosely speaking, faith equals trust equals confidence in righteousness. Go to 1 Peter 1, 3. 1 Peter 1, verse 3. <clears throat> And so in many ways, God leaves us here to prove to us, to work out this thing in us. Not only to build our faith and our trust, but also our confidence along the way. Because when your faith stands the test of time, when it stands up to pressure, what do you gain? You gain confidence. And so there's also a very practical aspect to this idea of confidence. It's not just knowing God and you're magically confident in every way, he says, no, let's put your faith to the test. See if you really trust me. And when I pull through for you, your confidence is going to elevate all the more. 1 Peter 1.3 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, 
who, by God's power, are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. You see, that's the, practic the practicality of life itself. You have been grieved by various trials. So that, why? So God allows this. Obviously, God ordains the trial you're going through right now, the thing that's been keeping you up at night. You know what? God ordained it. And if you have the right perspective, you can always make the most of it. There's always a silver lining. You, it, it may not be easy to follow his commands, to not lose your marbles and flip out and implode, because that's a command, right? We're supposed to be representing Christ. But it's not burdensome. You go through it. You want to keep his commands. You want to shine and bring glory to God. Why? Because you love him. That's why you keep his commandments. Did we not just learn that? And his commandments are not burdensome. Just like the mom at 3 a.m. when the baby's crying. It's not pleasant, but they do it out of love. And that love is tested. right? And even both parties, it's consummated between them. That When that love is tested. right? So that the tested genuineness of your faith, verse 7. Again, you're put through great, various trials. Verse 7, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, some of you probably have proof of your faith if you have NASB. I still recommend you get an ESV, by the way. Uh, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes through, through uh, though it is tested by fire, excuse me, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Did we not just read that? I want my joy to be in you. How? Keep the faith. Keep my commandments. Abide in my love. Watch it be proved out in you. Watch this thing happen, just like I promised. Again, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Beautiful. God orchestrates the whole thing. Again, our confidence depends upon the genuineness of our faith, or as the NASB states, the proof of our faith. Well, as we know from Holy Scripture, faith is a grace gift, and grace is the fundamental expression of God, because God is love. While our confidence is rooted in these things, the world's confidence, again, is destroyed by them. Hence the point on the board. One last time, the power of grace. Fleshly humans are offended by grace gifts. Grace, therefore, as it is known in God's economy, causes much consternation in the soul of the ungodly because it completely unhinges, dismantles, undermines, and destroys any hope of obtaining counterfeit promises from Satan's economy. Now, the more subtle issue here is one that cannot be overlooked by we children of God. And this is more about the practical side of things. Being deceived, Galatians 5, 9, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Counterfeits are most effective when they look the most authentic. Satan uses counterfeits to deceive us, mixing the truth with lies. One of the favorite ones that comes from this pulpit is just basically perverting the definition of grace. 
Well, how about perverting, everybody's favorite in this world, perverting the definition of love? How many people right now would say love is to keep his commandments? Seriously. Right? How many people, what is it, maybe one half of one tenth of one percent of the world would actually answer that way? Fair, fair enough. Who's going to say that that's love? Nobody I know, except you guys maybe. And even then, you know, your actions speak so loud. You know, I don't hear your word you're saying type stuff, right? We say we believe that, but then, you know, what are we doing watching uh, reruns of, I don't know, I almost said Three's Company, but that's kind of a quirky one. What's a little love sitcom? Anybody? Oh, you guys are like, I've never watched one of them. <laughs> Satan uses counterfeits to deceive us, mixing the truth with lies. You guys are sick, I'm just saying. Just because a person is saved doesn't mean they are impervious to blindness or the effects of sin. Fair enough? That's what he's saying. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. We all get, we all get fooled from time to time. We all like to get fooled from time to time if we're honest. But just because we're saved doesn't mean we're impervious to being fooled, to, be, to being blind. Um, in fact, as the Spirit taught us earlier in the series, none of us have perfect vision. Since we haven't been fully sanctified yet, I mean, that's in heaven, or completely set apart from sin experientially, therefore we are tempted daily by it. We don't have perfect vision. We can't always react perfectly. Sometimes we just get tripped up. Sometimes uh, temptation gets the, the best of us. So what's the problem? And what's the great defense in view? Knowledge. Doing what we're doing right now. Doing what we're doing right now. What else could you possibly do in this world? Decide for yourself. I'm just going to quit being tempted. I'm just going to quit all sinning. Heck, most of us don't even know we're sinning because we don't have all the commandments down. So our great defense is knowledge, doing what we're doing, learning the truth that sets us free, reading our Bibles, coming to Bible class, serving the Lord with our time and our energy, and as we do all of these things, as obedient children, our eyes are opened wide. And that's why the last couple of messages, we had Ephesians 1.18, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know. The Word of God is our shield. Right? Put on the full armor of God. The breastplate of righteousness, right? The helmet of salvation etc., etc., the shield of faith, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know. And as a balanced statement, while it's true that we might experience glimpses of clarity, our vision isn't flawless yet, which is why we still have the ability and even the propensity for sinning. Lies mixed with the lust of the flesh give birth to sin, which puts distance between us and God experientially clouding our vision even more. And when this distance becomes real, we lose our confidence. We lose our confidence. If we disobey, I hope you just saw, that, that was the mechanism. He's just saying, listen, if you're, if you're fooled, you experientially stop moving away from God. 
when you're sinning, when you're disobeying, when you're buying lies, when you're spun up in counterfeits, you start moving away from him experientially. And that's when we find ourselves over here and say, what happened to my confidence? Why am I anxious now, insecure? Why, what happened to my Christ esteem? What happened to the things that were my rock? Now I'm a mess. I can't sleep at night. I'm doing horrible at work. My relationships are suffering. The list goes on. What happened? All you have to do, honestly, is pay attention to what the Spirit's been saying the last couple of weeks. It means you've been veering away from obedience. It means that love, the keeping of his commandments even, has become burdensome somehow, that, that you've moved away from the thing that keeps you tight with him, which is obedience. So when this distance becomes real, we lose our confidence and we suffer. And just to sprinkle in a little bit extra here for you more mature people, Luke 12, 48 to whom much is given, much is required. So if you've been at this for a quite some time and then you choose to sin, you will suffer all the more. That's what Luke 12, 48 says. You'll get a greater whipping. <laughs> That's what the Bible says. To whom much is given, much is required. And so just expect it. Um, having our eyes open to the truth is... Where our freedom lies, though, up here on the board, and I want you to be encouraged up here on the board, Ephesians 5, 9, 13 to 14, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true, but when anything exposed by the light, it becomes visible, for anything that becomes visible is light, the good, the bad, and the ugly. We don't care. Just tell me. What am I? I want to confess this. To my, to my Lord, what is going on in my life? Tell me what's going on. The good, the bad, and the ugly, I don't care. We used to call that seeing it all as truth. We must learn the difference or the, to differentiate between God's economy and Satan's, and we're blessed when we do. If we truly wish to be set free, to enjoy the fruit of Christ's labor on our behalf, to share in his peace and confidence. We must cling to the truth. Cling to the truth. Do what you're doing right now. Grab hold of it and don't let it go. And be on guard. All right, we've got to change gears just a little bit. I kind of warned you at the start of class, a lot of moving parts this evening. I want to take another step closer now to exiting this series <clears throat> big picture, if we step back now and consider how the Spirit organized the messages in this incredibly enlightening series, what he's been reiterating over and over is the following. We have every right and every access to truth right here and right now. You have, if you're a believer, you have every right as a child of God you have every access to truth now, here and now, which means that we have every access to freedom. There's no excuse. We waltz ourselves back to bondage. Here's the catch, and this is from a previous message from this series a while back now, up here on the board. So we have access to all this goodness. 
blessings galore. But what good are all the riches in heaven if you don't know how to spend them? If you haven't learned the Word of God, you don't just magically stare at the Bible and all the truth by osmosis ends up in your brain. It doesn't work that way. You actually have to do what the Bible says. You actually have to take in the Word of God daily, always. Make it a habit. I mean, what good is having a, you know, a pot of gold if you don't know where it is, where it's buried? So here's the attitude toward the truth that sets us free that we want to adopt for ourselves. Go to Matthew 13, 44. Matthew 13, 44. You should make it exciting. It should be exciting to you to open up your Bible. And you don't have to be all giddy, right? But be excited the way this person was in this parable. Matthew 13, 44. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid again. And from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. How about that? How about that? Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid again. And from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. In other words, every possession that he has is not worth. He'll give up everything for what he found. Granted, this is a parable about salvation proper, but as we've learned over the years, salvation at any phase of sanctification carries with it the same basic process. Learn the truth, believe it, be set free by it. And then cycle, right? Uh, well, how do they say that? Uh, rinse, wash, repeat, that type of thing, right? Recycle it. And then this is 1 Peter 1, 7, right? The proof of your faith, right? And then it snowballs. It gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And that's a beautiful thing. Learn the truth. Believe it. Be set free by it. Wash, rinse, repeat. Did I say it? Is that right? Everybody's like, does it really matter? We can apply this pattern to both salvation proper and salvation and deliverance as a believer both of which fall under the umbrella of sanctification. Again, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. That should be the value of the word to us, the word of truth. So again, we're back at this question. Why doesn't everyone value the truth this way? Maybe we can learn some more from Paul and be encouraged by him up here on the board. Philippians 3.8 in the Amplified Classic, yes. Furthermore, I count everything as loss compared to the possession of the priceless privilege, the overwhelming preciousness, the surpassing worth and supreme advantage of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord and of progressively becoming more deeply and intimately acquainted with him, of perceiving and recognizing and understanding him more fully and clearly, for his sake I have lost everything and consider it all to be mere rubbish. And that's that Greek word skubalon. It means refuse or dregs or dung also. 
in order that I may win or gain Christ, the anointed one. That's the attitude we want. That's the thing we want to hold on to. So here's what the Spirit's been saying to us, frankly, to borrow from Paul's sentiments in Philippians 3.8. Nothing even comes close to knowing the truth. That is Jesus Christ himself. Nothing compares to knowing the Word of God. Nothing sets us free more than knowing what Paul knew, that life is about nurturing a relationship with God. We do this fundamentally through humility to his word. We do this by obeying the truth. And we do this out of love, which means none of it is burdensome. That's life. Paul knew it. We're learning it. Even Paul said he never perfected it, so we can't be too hard on ourselves, but that's life. That's a good life in Christ Jesus. That's what we're designed to be as a child of God. God himself wants this for all of us because, as we noted about 20 messages back up here on the board, remember this? Your life has value to God. It must have. He bore your sins on the cross. Your life has value to God. God has given each of us a gift called life. It is our precious opportunity to bring glory to God on earth. How shall we use it? How shall we spend our God-given resources? In which economy are we merchandising in? Romans 12, 1 to 2, 6, 11 to 13. Go to Romans 12, 1. We'll just, this is a point of review. Some of you probably remember this principle. As you're turning to Romans 12, 1, again, God has given us, each of us, a gift called life. It is our precious opportunity to bring glory to God on earth. How shall we use it? How shall we spend our God-given resources? In which economy are we merchandising in? Romans 12, verse 1. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Again, that's the word of God. Your life is value. Present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice, which is your spiritual service of worship. And that's what's acceptable to God. You might say, well, I just don't know where to get started. Where to start? Well, my job has been, if it's not obvious at this point, because I'm like a broken record, my job is to point out something very simple in response to that question. Where do I get started? Well, there it is. It's definitely not rocket science. It's, it's, it's three words, right? The longest word is five letters with two syllables. I'm going to say it's pretty easy to understand. While you're contemplating that deep thought, look at this. Psalm 19.8, the precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Psalm 119.28, my soul weeps because of grief. Strengthen me according to your word. Verse 111, I have inherited your testimonies, your word forever, for they are the joy of my heart. What do you see there? 
The person who takes in the word of God has all those blessings, a rejoicing heart, enlightened eyes, uh, the joy of my heart. Do you want those things in your life? Who doesn't want those things in their life? Read your Bible. Follow the command. Submit to the word of God. Submit to whatever grace God gives you, including this pulpit. Submit to it. It's not, it has nothing to do with me. This is another grace gift in your life. I want to visit an old friend, an old acquaintance uh, we made not so long ago. Go to Isaiah 55, verse 10. Isaiah 55, verse 10. That's all he's been telling us to do. Just read our Bibles. Enjoy it. Right? Make it a habit. Get up in the morning, read your Bible, read a chapter here, a chapter there. Look forward to it. Make it something that you're excited about. Isaiah 55, 10. Be like that person who, you know, found the treasure in the field. I mean, you can sell 10 minutes of your time. He sold everything. You could, send, you could sell 10 minutes of your time, right, to read the Bible. I think so. I think you could give up that on a daily basis. Isaiah 55, 10. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth and making it bear and sprout and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater. Verse 11. So will my word be, which goes forth from my, from my mouth, so will my word be, which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. You know what that says? You can have full confidence in what the Spirit just said. Read your Bible and enjoy these benefits. Read your Bible, obey, abide in Him. Right? All the goodness is with Him. Reading his word, taking in his word, never comes back empty-handed. It's the greatest return on investment you could ever make. Think about that. You can work more, make more money, have more stuff, or you can take some of that time. Maybe you don't make as much money, but I'm telling you, the, word, the return on investment on that time is much, much greater than anything you could make in this world. Why read your Bible? Up here on the board. The Word of God never returns empty-handed. We just read that. That's a promise from God. You read your Bible, you benefit. Never returns empty-handed. I don't know of any stock. I'll tell you a funny story. I've never done it again. When I had a little extra money back in the day, uh, I took like a thousand bucks and I put it in E-Trade. Then I started dabbling. Two weeks, gone. DJ, it's not funny, man. Still miss it. Gone. What a terrible investment, right? Terrible. Lost my shirt. Never has that ever happened when I opened up my Bible. I've never come away empty-handed. I might come away convicted and a little bit beat up and bruised, but still that's goodness. It's goodness for someone who loves the Lord. It's never a burden. The word of God never returns empty-handed, Isaiah 55, 11. It is perfect in its quest to set you free. 
It is therefore the greatest possible investment we can ever make with whatever precious resources God has given us. For example, our soul, our time, our gratitude. And just as an analogy, I kind of alluded to it, and I'm going to close up shop here in a moment. When you invest in the stock market, is it wise to be informed or uninformed? Duh, right? You want to know more than anything that a stock choice is going to be good to you, right? Kind of pick your horse, right? I mean, you want to invest your hard-earned money into a stock that delivers on its promise to make you at least somewhat wealthier, right? Well, investing in your Bible education is sort of like that. It has an ROI that far surpasses any other investment of your time and energy, though. It's always up and to the right with the Bible. You may feel beat up, but even that is progression. Remember, you have to be brought low before he can elevate you. He exalts the humble. When you're weak, then you're strong. Just consider one promise from the Word of God that a person receives if they simply read or hear it for themselves. And then i got to close up here on the board. He will not fail you. We read this. This is a point of review from back in, oh, I don't know, probably a few months now. He will not fail you. Joshua 1.5, 1 Chronicles 28.20. Why? Because he loves you. God is love, 1 John 4.16. Love never fails. 1 Corinthians 13.8. How about that for an investment strategy, okay? What, how long did that take us, honest to goodness? Ten seconds? I did a little work preparing it. You did a little work listening, I think. Would it take ten seconds? Are you better off for knowing those things? Yeah, God is love. That's holy scripture. Not a lie. And love never fails. So if he says he's never going to fail you, you know what happens? You can bet on it. You can have confidence. He never fails you. Take a thousand bucks, put it in E-Trade, see if you can find a stock that never fails you. Okay, don't. You can, you can uh, use my horrible experience as a trader, as a day trader, and forget the whole thing. Keep your money. Work a little less. Spend a little more time reading verses like this. Amen? The truth makes you free. Let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this incredible privilege of studying your word here this evening. We just ask for your blessings as we take the things we've learned back to the privacy of our own homes and then possibly when called to do so, Father, out to a world that's just so desperate for truth. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.